Psalm 108 would be, I think, qualified uh, for us as a victory psalm. It's titled, as most of you can see, as one in which there's an assurance of God in a time in which the enemy, perhaps having taken advantage of us, is now under the, um, the victory and the finality of a decisive win by the Lord. So I think that one of the things that we also can use as an important term is valiantly, valiantly, valiantly. You know, there was a cartoon figure years ago, comics, and it was Prince Valiant, you know. He had the hair, he had the armor, he had the muscles. And uh, for those of you that remember the comics as of such, usually came in the Sunday paper, most of the guys would direct their eyes towards this guy. He was a victor. And everything about him seemed to represent the wholesomeness that you would expect. But when we look at David, who has penned this psalm, there couldn't have been someone more esteemed as a valiant victor. And one of the things that we know is that he was such because his confidence and trust was in the Lord. And he was able to have such a confidence and trust in the Lord that he was able to go going against a very formidable foe. That was Goliath, you remember that. But even before that, and even with my wimpy little confession, he took on bears and lions. <laughs> I didn't, if you remember the analogy. When I went on my devotional walk and I heard turkeys laughing at me in the trees 60 feet up, and I think they were laughing because they knew what was in the forest just 50 feet ahead, and I heard the squawk of a animal that became prey, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to pray elsewhere so that I don't become prey for that thing. There wasn't really anything valent about that, you know. Self-preservation is more of my mindset at the time. But that being said, is this psalm can be broken up with that theme, and the other, I think, point you can take down is how do you describe someone who is valiant? What would best describe that? And would you be one of those? And if you are, then it means probably not in your own strength, for mine certainly didn't prevail, and my mind certainly wasn't kept. You know, the best thing I can say is I was able to briskly walk away and move somewhere else. But the idea behind valiant victory with God and those whom he chooses best described probably by determined courage. You're determined and you're courageous because of one whom you have put your trust in. Jesus would actually authenticate that when in the latter portion of his ministry he told the disciples what they would be facing and it didn't sound very exciting. It sounded as though they would be entering into a persecution. And in fact, they were. They would be brought before magistrates. They would be kicked out of synagogue. And they would be pursued and chased. 
martyred. With the exception of John, they all were. And yet, the heritage that they gave as far as what we would say as a church was how to live a life and to live a life that was priceless and yet costly, but invested to the last breath in assuring those who had ears to hear that they would have had an opportunity to turn their hearts to the Lord. The first four verses, as this divides itself into three distinct areas of focus, would be on praise. And so as David enters into that, we need to be reminded that this actually was a discipline of God's army. He had stationed Judah. He had stationed the Levites who were those appointed as ministers and of them singers and musicians to go out in front of the battle line. It was literally to be a it was literally to be a rolling concert. They were to move ahead of those who were equipped. And I think that's so fascinating that that was their lineup. We would think that they would be behind and to do so to have protection from those who were equipped. But God says, I'm going to equip this army with singers and players, and they're going to be praising me as I move you into battle and as I claim the victory, and you will give me glory. Fascinating. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. Another good term for steadfast is immovable. One of the great prophets in the Bible would challenge the people. How long will you waver between two opinions? And that is a good phrase for us today. How long will we waver between two opinions? Politics seemingly has two sides, so there are other voicings in it. But what we want to do is to be centered not on the opinion of men, but on the heart of God. Very important. So steadfast means immovable. You will not suffer from faulty persuasion. You will not be ensnared by political perversion. And though we link perversion with sexuality, there's a deeper meaning behind it. And if you go back to that teaching, you'll find it's an important understanding. It means basically moving away from the origin of intent, which when there are people exercising in secularism and in godlessness, and it's expressed in lawlessness, that is precisely a good definition that follows in terms of the behavior of people. And we see that perhaps more so than we ever have in these times. Straying away from the origin of intent, what it was meant for. We've seen marriage under assault. We have seen the church under assault. We have seen the government under assault. 
And sometimes, though, we can say, well, it's happening because of those who are overseeing it. But we also have an enemy that desires to see the breakdown of origin or original intent. So when you see that, you need to understand that's a very important thing to consider, being steadfast. I will sing praise and give praise. This indicates, and I think it also has merit, is that whether you can sing or not, give it a try. One of the things that we're looking at doing, and it's only for the purpose of perhaps better equipping the saints to sing, perhaps more freely, is to have some wide screens up here. Now, I don't believe that the church has prospered anymore because of the wide screens, because the early church did not have that available, and probably they were not publishing bulletins every week. Songs that were sung were part of the anthems that David penned and that Moses penned. Solomon also was a great songwriter, a thousand or so. I haven't touched that one, but that's marvelous. And in those days where oral tradition was the means by which education happened and, and music really was stored in the heart, that's an incredible accomplishment. So when it says that in this, I will sing and give praise, we can do both of those things simultaneously. But there are times in which the praise does come from those who are in their singing to the Lord, able to say, Amen. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, God. Very often it may be those of us who perhaps aren't able to sing out the songs, but we're humming, and as we're humming, we're giving praise to the Lord. I appreciated the songs that were chosen tonight because I was able to easily assimilate them. They're great works that have such familiarity to us today that they're easily entreated for us to hum along, to sing parts of the chorus, parts of the verses, but to give praise as well. That doesn't mean give complaints while you're singing. It means to give praise. And we have obviously a wonderful passage that we, that we find to be necessary at times to give the sacrifice of praise when you don't feel like it. There are people that, because of a variety of challenges, find it difficult to praise the Lord in difficulties. But the Lord does nevertheless allow difficulties. And it's in those times where we are to be, if you would, in that test and on trial, will we, can we? The world doesn't have anyone to praise, but we have a God that's worthy of praise no matter what we're going through. Steadfast, immovable. You're right down the center of God's word and you're at the core of his heart. He hears you sing. He receives your praise. Even with my glory. That's a very telling phrase there. 
David's saying that no matter the fame that I have in my life right now, it means nothing greater than the one who is most famous, most worthy of all that I've been able to achieve. He's the one that has allowed me to achieve it. Even with my glory, David knew what it was like to be in the face of public scrutiny and of great salutations, praise. He probably was in his days what we would call today a rock star. But what we do know about David is that never corrupted him in the sense of being one that would accept idol worship. And what we see here in that is that whatever was at David's disposal, he shared very wholeheartedly. We're told what actually he would do when he had petitioned the Lord to be able to build the Lord a temple. The Lord withdrew that request, just vetoed it. But he said, David, I will build you a house. And David was so overwhelmed, we found that he went into the place of the tabernacle to enjoy honoring the Lord for what God said he would do for David. And that's a wonderful reflection of his heart. Most of us, as we come into this facility, we can take a lot of things for granted. But in February, that'll be nine years for the church. And in May, it will be three years that we will have been here. And had you seen the place, as I saw it, with a flashlight, you would marvel at what God has done. Wait a minute, what does God have? Well, he has everything to do with this place. But he has also everything to do with how he placed people in this place to do the things that bring him honor and glory. Around the clock, I'm confident there is prayer. Around the clock, at times I do not see, there are people that are managing here things that just need to be done, praising the Lord as they are accomplished and allowing us to come in and to enjoy being entreated to something that is well-kept, honoring the Lord. And it's marvelous. You go, how could this be? They're not even being forced to do it. They don't even have titles in doing it. And I also have opinions about titles. That sometimes titles bring a sense of entitlement. But when we're talking about the title of God Almighty and the one who David recognized on a personal, devotional level, it's pretty awesome. Inciting this again, he had lived a life of determined courage. And even though we know where we're at, and the scriptures presently in 2 Samuel, he had some goof-ups, what we would call candidly sin. And yet David never stopped. Instead, fastly, even through the difficulties of the consequence of that, honoring the Lord, trusting in him for the next victory, even though what we have read about him plummets him, into grievous outcomes. 
loss of life, of reputation. David kept steadfast with the Lord. He goes on to cite, and very likely, some of the instruments that he himself developed. He was not only an instrumentalist, he was an instrument designer. You wouldn't want to play a guitar that I made. It would be humorous to you, but it would be hard on your ears. But I've seen those who have the gifting of putting instruments together. Luthiers are noted for that and technically able to fix things that break on them. And they have a marvelous contribution to people like me that can barely string a guitar. But David was one actually who was a manufacturer of instruments that were used for holy praise. Lute and harp, I will awaken the dawn. We've seen that in today's teaching where Jesus would leave from one situation that had proven contentious as the multitudes scattered to their homes and he went to the Mount of Olives, he did so alone and he did so to pray. And he was up early in the morning at the breaking of dawn. When the sun would crest over the Temple Mount, Jesus was inside the temple area. People had seen him on his way to devotions. And I liked the picture. And on his way, we know that that prepared him for what was about to happen. And you can listen to that in today's teaching. And that was a woman who found victory in Jesus, for she was one who had been put into a situation, caught in the act of adultery. It was planned, premeditated, it was for the purpose of casting derision upon the Lord and to see how he would adjudicate her crime. And the title of that was Before the Face of Virtue. Virtue means holy purity. He was perfect, no sin in him whatsoever, but he was dealing with sinners continually. And we find that the way he dealt with them was with grace and truth. In that teaching, whenever that event happened, by the time he had been up early and teaching within the temple, and was disrupted by those who brought this charge against her, I shared that they would have had to cross the threshold of what is qualified as the beautiful gate. And I shared that in that crossing the threshold, that woman who had been publicly humiliated, a walk of shame being dragged from that place, very likely in the neighboring housing district within that area very close to the temple that she had to have been remarkably encouraged not by what the men were doing to her but in advance what she perhaps was able to sense in her heart 
the ugliness of sin being addressed by a threshold that she knew was a beautiful gate, and then to be faced off with the beautiful Son of God, and to be before him as a man of virtue, who would impart virtue to her and extend grace and mercy and admonish her in truth. Pretty amazing. Many of the things that we see in David's pennings touch our hearts because he had the heart of God. He links himself generationally with whom? Jesus. That's exactly what it means. When we, when we have an opportunity to explore the Psalms, we see that there's always a link with the one whom he believed God would indeed keep on his throne forever. And this was indeed a promise to David, and it wasn't because of how well he had been doing. It was in spite of it. Pretty amazing. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. So we awaken the dawn here. Worship at 6.30, whether there's anyone or someone or many. The dawn is awakened by the stringed instruments, by psalms that are read, prayers that are given. I believe it pleases the Lord. I believe that you're able to say, hmm, would like to be there, but I can't. And that is not anything that I take lightly, meaning that I believe that to be true. Much is imposed on us to be at places that require us, and I think that's honorable to be there. But one of the things you can do is be reminded that the dawn is being awakened here, in this house. This house actually, when we leave, the music's cued, and this plays music 24-7 here. And I do it for a reason. I do it to have a perpetual sound of worship. And by proxy, you can say, I'm there. I know those guys are playing music to the Lord. I know that worship is ascending at this very moment. So even if you're on K-Love or K-Dove, there's a work here that's going on, and you can be okay with that. You can say, that is awesome. Bless them. There are people that can find themselves broken here, receive promises from God here. And so as we look at this, this is all about in verses 1 through 4, praise that ought to be ascribed to the Lord. And I will use a play on words inscribed upon the heart of God's people. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens. And your truth reaches to the clouds. So they didn't have telescopes in those days, and the clouds were a pretty lofty invitation to consider God in a very special way. So were the stars, which David equally penned about. But the clouds are interesting as a thought here. Your truth reaches to the clouds. And the things about clouds is that they change in their configuration, not truth. But truth will configure itself around the things that God says 
must be known, must be told, must be shared concerning himself. No one is even with excuse saying, I never knew. God says, I sent a cloud of truth to you, over you, before you, behind you. I hedged you in. The reality of what I have done, even by the clouds, could indict you. But I have forgiven you. And though entertained by them, they speak of wanting to connect with you. And so I love that. In verses 5 through 9, the psalmist moves into a time which we need to simply identify as prayer. And there are things that he's in prayer about, and they relate to what he knows about. And that's very often what prayer does. What we know about, we pray. What we don't know about, and what you need to be reminded of, the Spirit prays. For every believer that says, I'm tongue-tied with God, the Spirit isn't. You don't have him shackled at all. In groanings, we are told, the Spirit prays. And that's comforting. Because sometimes we can say, oh, I didn't make morning prayer. Have you ever missed morning prayer? Right. We all have. We all have. But what you need to know is the Lord didn't. You are vessels of housing for the Holy Spirit. So even though you may think much about your prayers, God thinks very much about praying through you, on behalf of you, and for the things that you don't even know what to pray for. All you have to do is say, Lord, I know you're praying for me. Lord in heaven, you are praying over me. Holy Spirit, you are praying through me. There's a connection I'm on a direction, but Lord, there is a connection. I acknowledge you in that. And that gives me peace because guess what? Then I'm not under the law of what I didn't do, but I'm under liberty in what he is doing, satisfying and fulfilling me. And I like that because I can find myself not liking myself and that has ramifications. But then I'm reminded even in that. The point isn't what I haven't done. It's always pointing to the Lord and what he has done. David has acknowledged that. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. That's a Prince Valiant petition. That's an awesome prayer to even focus on. What's being acknowledged here? Well, think of the tenderness of that word, beloved, and the inflection, God's beloved. He loves the church. He loves Israel. He loves sinners. His heart is to love. We know that because Jesus said it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever believes in him can cross through the threshold of the beautiful gate and encounter him in a time in which accusations are flying 
and perhaps the reality of grievous faults against us could be met out in pointing fingers and gnashing teeth. But it's a great picture. We are his, we're his beloved, and he is ours. God is love, and love is of God. It's a tender, passionate word, beloved. It has deep meaning. Some would say, why does the Apostle John use that with such frequency? And some pastors, dearly beloved. Well, it's actually a very endearing word. To be beloved is an exceptional word. It's not really to be underestimated at all. And for the one who has received it, and in particular from the Lord's heart, it is an encouraging word. And it's encouraging because it speaks of the fact that there is a deliverance in which we entrust ourselves to the lover of our soul. That you are beloved. You love me, Lord. You love us, Lord. And we shall be delivered based on you being a greater than a prince valiant. And in that, there is the opportunity, and it's a great opportunity to say, Lord, may I emulate you, not mimic you, not impersonate you, but may I emulate you, being indistinguishably so close to you that no one would know the difference other than the uniqueness of who you've made me to be. I like that. Save with your right hand and hear me. The right hand is always equated with the strength, both of men and of God, a strong right arm. And as that closes on six, the petition is hear me. I think that's a good word to use. It's not that the Lord's deaf, but you know how you just cheer God on? Lord, hear me. Not Hear me, hear ye, hear ye. Oh Lord, hear me, I'm your beloved. God has spoken in his holiness, verse seven, and I will rejoice. How does God speak to David in his holiness? Well, the spirit was at work with David. What we know is that the spirit came upon men and women when in the need of expressing empowerment by God, they were endued, especially for the moment, for the need. God has spoken in his holiness, I will rejoice. We'd seen earlier in the text of setting for Samuel that Samuel actually learned at a very early age to address the Lord. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Hear me, Lord, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so that indicates that there is communion and communication that is transpiring, something important to be reminded of. It goes into now what we would call features. 
of those kinds of challenges that David faced in a geopolitical environment, enemies that will be mentioned, but also tribes that will have mention. So David brings it out. This is where he's at. Gilead is mine. It's capitalized because God is speaking through David, almost as if the response of David's prayer is now being dressed specifically on the concerns that David has. Will Gilead be lost? You've heard at times of the balm of Gilead. So it's a special name. He moves on to say in this as well, Manasseh is mine. As you recall, that was a name given to one of the tribes. It was drafted in through the lineage of Joseph. God's saying that all of these, those things that concern you, David, are mine. So that's, that's my thing to solve for you. Questions you have about the people of God, where they're at in relationship to me, where they're at in their relationship with you, that's, that's on me, David. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. These very likely are the thoughts that David was having and God's reaffirming. It's all mine. Those that are indeed enemies and those who are as kin to you and still with you. Don't worry about it, David. It's mine. Over Edom I will cast my shoe, an enemy group, the Edomites of the Israels, Israelites. David did battle with them had victory over them. And God's basically saying in this that you can see me cast my shoe over them. That was basically a sign of rejection. To take the sandal off and shake it at someone was a very demonstrative example of you're nothing to me. And that's what the Lord is saying. They're nothing to you, David, because they're nothing to me. My sandal is flying over their head. O Philistia, or over Philistia, I will triumph. That would be basically the land that would have been the Philistine area of occupancy. And David had already addressed that earlier. The Philistines would continue to plague Israel. But from time to time, as David began to get older, some of the victories that we have get forgotten, don't they? When a giant that you took down because God gave you favor and empowerment becomes a fading memory, then it means there are other giants that you begin to imagine. But what could be greater than what God allowed David to see through a giant that's nine feet tall, hurls a 70-pound spear, taunts Israel with blasphemous language against God to such a degree that the offense needed to be dealt with, and David was the one that would deal with it. But we at times are haunted by what? 
forgetting the past victories of God. It's not that God has ever failed us. It's that we at times put far too much emphasis on the great victory. Everyone that saw it. But God would say, but daily I give you victory. And I see it. You may not. Others may not. But I assure you, I give you victories every day over the things that you battle in your mind and in your heart, the battles that are within your body. A lot of us have, you know, afflictions in our body, and they test and try us. And we forget at times to say, the Lord is valiant also as the great physician. He goes into me in places that no physician could find, no x-ray. No MRI could find, he finds and deals with it. He indeed finds the balm of Gilead and applies it to my wounds. My soul is different. I stuffed myself last night. I was doing so good during the day. <laughs> And out of nowhere, the Lord filled our table up with a Thanksgiving meal, and it wasn't even Thanksgiving. Everything that you could imagine at Thanksgiving was on my table. And I rejoiced in the table, the banqueting table that the Lord had put before me. As most of you may have been, we were watching probably what you were, the debates. And it made me hungry. <laughs> Ravenous. And so there was a laptop put in the position of all things in front of the table. And there was a living room where the majority of people were. Now one could ask, so why were you watching the one at the table? Because everything was within arm's reach at the table. Every roll, every slice of butter, cranberry, potatoes, everything, gravy. Not just a little bit, the whole turkey was there. Lord, you prepared for me a table in the presence of my family. <laughs> oh, I lived to regret it. I cried out to the Lord in groanings. I said, oh, Lord, my gluttony. And I just asked for him to touch me today. <laughs> Take a little apple cider vinegar. Okay, Lord, I'll do that. Gurgle, gurgle, swallow. <laughs> But I just had to let the day play out, though. But I had to say, Lord, you were good. I hurt myself on my own account. And my wife was a blessing for that banquet. Nevertheless, the point that's being made here is that as David is ruminating in what we can say is a moment of prayer, these burdens are upon him. How are my people doing? Lord, I just don't have connection with him. That's the burden of the church today too. Lord, how are your people, our people doing without connection with them? Lord, you know, and the Lord says, I do know. And Lord, what about the enemies? What about them? And the Lord would say, what enemies? I'm Prince Valiant. What is that to you? I'm the victor. And you've already stated your heart that I will receive glory, your glory. All that you are, you are giving to me. 
in the confidence that you demonstrate in who I am. I like that. And so as that wraps up there, and that is through verse 9, it closes in verses 10 and 13. And this would be, again, what we can say through David's eyes are promises. I was going through my Bible today and seeing in margins promises that God had given to me that I penned. I saw one that dated back 2010. So for you that don't know, I moved here in September 4th of 2011 with my family, sojourned to a land that God would show me. And so I know what it's like as decades pass and as years stack up, even to the point now I'm going, when I see photographs, where did that happen? Where were we? What were we doing? Chrissy clarifies, but God also makes clarification as well by bringing me back to promises that he gave. I pen them. Where are they? How did I forget them? And God would say, well, Rich, you teach about forgetfulness every Sunday. You tell the people, this is to remember the Lord. This is to remember the Lord. And as you remember me and you will forget, just like they, just like everybody does, I will bring to your remembrance by your time in the word what I have spoken. And what I have spoken, I am able to perform. But I so appreciate it because I have both a journal and then I journal things in my Bible and it's one of the things that any man and woman will tell you, if it's a Bible that's been with you a long time, one of the most grievous things is to say, what happened to it? Where did it go? Oh, no. Because it is a personal work of God through a book that he's given to you. And it has timelines that you want to be reminded of. And so this is, in verses 10 through 13, the promises. Who will bring me into the strong city? That's like I said, Lord, how did I get here? Oh, yeah. The date was the year 2010, according to your word, O Lord, and where I'm at now, according to your faithfulness, O Lord. Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? Question. And that's what happens when we forget. And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? The questions that come up, because that's what the enemy wants to say as well. You may ask, where are the promises? The promises are always knitted in with the questions. That's why the, the promises become so precious because they answer the questions, right? They answer the questions. Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. And the emphasis here closes on 13. Through God, we will do valiantly. Title, Prince Valiant. Meaning, 
be as he is to us, determined and courageous. For it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Through God we will do valiantly. For the help of man is useless. How often do we seek the help of men, avoiding the connection we have with God, whom now closes with David's heart, confirming that he alone, as God, does so valiantly. This is an interpretive closure on a promise that David had as he voiced questions that were satisfied by reassurance. The reassurance of the Lord that he does valiantly. He's faithful. Never have to doubt him. The balm of Gilead is available. The God who healeth all thine diseases has never stopped doing that. Even though disease may have its way in an outcome that causes death for the believer and the message of the gospel, we move from this place to his place. And it is no different and even faster than waking up from a nightmare or a beautiful dream. Take your picture in your mind. Have you had nightmares lately? God will deliver you from them. Have you had beautiful dreams? God will deliver you to them. And it's awesome when we see that reality in the Lord. Pretty amazing. I said I was going to get you through 109, and you know that that's a ridiculous statement right now. This was supposed to be just that whew, vacuum, just a quick feeding. But I did to you and the word tonight, as I did at the banqueting table last night. One of the things that I endeavor to do is make this an opportunity in which refreshment is given, the word is fed, and you guys have an opportunity to say, Lord, it is well with my soul. Well done, Lord. And now as we close our evening off, may there have been in this comfort, encouragement, perhaps exhortation. I think there was some of that in this. And we need that as, as well at times, don't we? 